mammoth was huge, perhaps 12 feet at the shoulder. Its forelegs were the forelegs of a behemoth. Its long, curved tusks swept the space in front of it like the antennae of a giant insect frozen in ivory. And even though it fed on grass, not flesh, one blow from its feet or one swing of its tusk would have crushed any predator foolish enough to threaten it. That description of a gargantuan Ice Age beast is how Thomas Sheridan begins the first chapter of his Arizona, A History. He used it as a jumping-off point to discuss what followed the mammoth as it lumbered across the landscape we today would have trouble recognizing as southern Arizona. That is, humans. But before we begin to follow the main actor around, I want to concentrate on that mammoth. Because Arizona is nothing if not a home for an assortment of strange, almost unique animals and habitats, and, as our Tusk friend here proves, has been for a long time. And that's something worth exploring. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 3, Thorns and Stingers, or Why Everything Wants to Kill You. First off, I hope everyone takes the title of this episode for the joke that it is. Obviously not everything wants to kill you, though to the outsider it might seem that way. Venomous creatures such as 19 different types of rattlesnakes, more than 30 types of scorpions, one of the world's poisonous lizards, the Gila monster, skitter across the ground full of almost aggressive-looking plants, mesquite, acatillo, agave, and more species of cactus than you can count. But that is only a surface glance at a state that in actuality can boast all the different biomes that exist on Earth, from tropical dry forest to arctic tundra, with the sole exception being tropical rainforest. To understand all this diversity, and what it means for the plants and animals that have and currently make Arizona their home, let's jump back a few million years. We are only going back fairly recently, a short 2.6 million years or so, but if we went back further, we would have found large bodies of water containing sharks, corals, oysters, clams, mollusks, and mosasaurs, the giant marine reptile featured prominently in the last couple Jurassic World movies. Above and along these, we could also find turtles, crocodiles, and all manner of dinosaurs. But since we only have so much time, the Wayback Machine has got to stop at 2.6 million years ago, at the beginning of what is known as the Pleistocene Epoch. During this period, the Earth began to rapidly cool. In Europe, the average temperature is estimated to have dropped somewhere between 27 and 36 degrees Fahrenheit, and saw the formation of great ice sheets, formidable glaciers, across most of the globe. It should be noted here that there never was an quote-unquote ice age. Rather, there were several 100 to 200,000 year periods over millions of years of dipping temperatures and glacier formation with warmer 10 to 20,000 year interglacial periods. In fact, since the end of the last glacial period is only a relatively brief 12,000 years ago, it has been suggested that the Pleistocene Epoch is not really over at all, and that the so-called Holocene Epoch we are living in now is just another short stretch before the glaciers come back. In the United States, these glacial periods covered the Northeast and Midwest at least four times. During the last time, known as the Wisconsin Glacial, a massive ice sheet extended down from Canada as far south as New York and Ohio, covering the Great Lakes and present-day New York City under two miles of ice. Arizona was too far south to be covered by glaciers, though mountain glaciers did form on the San Francisco peaks and Mount Baldy in the White Mountains. 
But for our purposes, the main impact on the spot of land that would become Arizona was that during the interglacial periods, there was substantially more precipitation. Where there today is desert or desert grasslands, groves of ponderosa pine grew on lower mountain slopes, with pinyon juniper in the higher valley locations for an estimated 90% of the 2.6 million years that made up the Pleistocene era. The valley floor may have looked like a tropical savanna, with evidence of plenty of springs, ponds, and lakes spread across the land. And that brings us back to our mammoth friend. In 1951, summer rains and flooding near the town of Naco, on the present international border with Mexico in Cochise County, exposed parts of a mammoth skull. Further excavation uncovered more bones, along with the spear tips that most likely did the poor beast in. The next year, more monsoon rains exposed large teeth in an arroyo on land belonging to Ed Lerner near Hereford, roughly 10 miles away. Further rain and excavation revealed the bodies of at least eight mammoths and more evidence of human intervention. While there isn't much to see, you can find a small plaque commemorating the discovery off of State Route 92 in the area. Not to disappoint, but these were not the woolly mammoths of popular imagination. Unfortunately, despite the cooler temperatures, Arizona was still too hot for those. This species of mammoth would have looked to modernize more like a large elephant with huge curving tusks. Further research at these locations, as well as Murray Springs near Sierra Vista and Double Adoble northwest of Douglas, give us a glimpse at the other large mammals, known as megafauna, that were in the San Pedro River Valley during this era, roughly 12,000 to 10,000 years ago. This includes, and is not limited to, bison with a horn span of 10 feet, camels, both familiar and smaller ones that were more like modern llamas, the large dire wolf, the Shasta giant sloth that was the size of a bear, horses, lions that weighed 500 pounds, the American mastodon, which was shorter and more compact than a mammoth, shrub oxen, which had massive curved horns and weighed 1,600 pounds, and large 200-pound tapers. What became of these massive creatures is still a matter of debate. The most controversial theory is that the other new arrival on the scene, known to you and I as Paleolithic humans, caused their extinction through overhunting. As I said, this has not been proven, and there is a lot of debate over what role, if any, early humans had on the eventual demise of the megafauna. The other main theory is that they died off due to a drying climate as the southwest transitioned from a tropical savanna to the desert we know today. Speaking of which... I imagine that if you were to pull the average person on the street in Peoria, Illinois, about the geography and climate of Arizona, they would reply in some way, shape, or form with, it's a desert. While not technically accurate, as we'll get into later, a good third of the state is dominated by the impressive Sonoran Desert. But we need to take a moment to define a desert, because compared with the Sahara, Arizona's southern portion looks positively lively. So what makes a desert? The key here is not so much aridity, but the potential for water loss through evaporation or through the leaves on trees. For example, the Tucson area sees roughly 12 inches of measurable rain in any given year, which is less than the Pacific coast of Baja, California, or even Alaska, but the overall climate could evaporate roughly eight times that amount. And that's not even quote-unquote the worst part of the state. The Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum's excellent natural history of the Sonoran Desert gives the general, non-technical definition for desert as, quote, a place where water is severely limiting to life most of the time, end quote. 
A desert can owe its dryness to one of two conditions, or a combination of both. The first is being in the rain shadow of a mountain range, where air is pushed up and over the range by prevailing winds, causing it to cool and drop its moisture before reaching the other side, that other side being where the desert forms. The second is a bit more complicated, but basically, hot, moist air at the equator rises to high elevations, then spreads north or southward. The air then cools and sinks again at roughly 30 degrees latitude, and then heads back towards the equator to complete the circuit. These zones of sinking air were called horse latitudes by sailors. A combination of factors, too technical for our purposes, creates these zones of dry, high-pressure areas on the western edge of all of Earth's larger landmasses at about 30 degrees latitude north or south. The most famous of these horse-latitude deserts might be the sand-filled Sahara or Chile's Atacama Desert, which might go decades without seeing rainfall despite being right next to the ocean. North America has four great deserts. The Great Basin Desert, Mojave Desert, Chihuahua Desert, and Sonoran Desert. Arizona has a portion of all of them, which I suppose is one claim to fame. But the Sonoran Desert is the most important to understanding the history and development of Arizona, so that is where our focus will be. This desert is roughly 100,000 square miles, covering the southern portion of Arizona, parts of southeastern California, most of the Baja California Peninsula, most of the Mexican state of Sonora, and even some islands in the Gulf of California. The lower third of it straddles 30 degrees north latitude, creating a horse latitude desert, while the rest is a rain shadow desert. But several things set the Sonoran apart from the other North American deserts. First, it has generally mild winters, with many areas rarely experiencing frost, so much of the flora and fauna are partly tropical in origin. Secondly, it's a bi-seasonal rain pattern, where occasional gentle rains will fall between December and March, followed by violent thunderstorms and localized deluges during the summer monsoon season from July through mid-September. Third, it has distinguishing plants such as legume trees, uh, these are mesquites and palo verdes, and the large columnar cacti. Finally, it's a comparatively lush desert home with thousands of species of animals and plants. The Sonoran Desert, as we understand it today, is relatively young, probably reaching its modern state roughly 4,500 years ago. In fact, it and the other North American deserts are among the youngest biotic communities on the continent, a biotic community being basically what a layperson would call an ecosystem. But a proto-Sonoran desert is thought to have formed roughly 8 million years ago. This proto-desert would have expanded and contracted, especially during the glacial and interglacial periods of the Pleistocene epoch. Its various plants and animals would have adjusted their ranges and habitats to fit the prevailing conditions. As an important part of this story, cacti are thought to have evolved between 56 and 34 million years ago in a dry tropical forest. Fun fact! The stately saguaro, one of the defining plants of the Sonoran Desert, were restricted to small warm refuges during the Pleistocene Epoch and only started expanding their range in the last 10,000 years. The fossil record shows that they only reached the greater Tucson area, home of the eponymous Saguaro National Park, in the past 8,000 years. That means humans have been living in southern Arizona longer than the saguaro. But the saguaro's adaptation to the relatively recently formed Sonoran Desert also brings up a good point made by the Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum's natural history. Quote, Though desert plants and animals must cope with scarce water, 
The common perception that they are struggling to survive is grossly inaccurate. In fact, most of the species require an arid environment for survival." End quote. The desert supports 2,000 species of plants, about 500 species of vertebrates, and, in the natural history's words, quote, an unknown thousands of invertebrate species, end quote. So how did they do it? Since the availability of water is the most limiting factor, unsurprisingly, most adaptations have to deal with soaking up as much as possible. Which brings us to everyone's favorite desert plants, cacti. Almost all cacti, and some notable desert plants such as agave, aloe, and elephant trees, are succulents, which have evolved to have water on the brain, so to speak. They have adapted to suck in large quantities of water in short periods, but only from soils that are wetter than their interiors. Since desert rains are light and rarely penetrate more than a few inches of topsoil, most succulents don't have roots that grow more than four inches below the surface. A typical two-foot choya cactus in a particularly arid area may have roots that extend outward 30 feet. The root system of a giant saguaro extends as far out as the plant is tall. This shallow root system is the reason why, as many a homeowner who has had a saguaro in their yard know, a particular hard rain that softens the ground can cause one of these giants to topple. Succulents also store their water in waxy cuticles that are nearly waterproof and have a reduced surface area by having small or no leaves that helps prevent loss of this resource. They also use a more water-efficient variant of photosynthesis known as Casolacean Acid Metabolism, or CAM. And most, as I'm sure you're aware, have spines. Spines actually serve a number of purposes aside from causing you pain, but here are two examples. First and foremost, they keep opportunistic animals from using cacti as the community water cooler. Though it should be noted, many animals, such as the desert pack rat, have adapted to get around this thorny problem. Sorry, couldn't resist a pun. Secondly, a dense array of spines, like with the teddy bear choya, actually serves to create shade and stop damage from the blazing sun. There are some other fun adaptations, such as using lighter colors to reflect more heat, or the prickly pear cactus growing vertically so that the flat surfaces of its pad don't burn in the middle of the day, but will face the sun directly in the morning and the evening, when photosynthesis is most efficient. Of course, animals also have to play the water game and use a variety of strategies. Dr. Dale DiNardo, an associate professor at Arizona State University, has spent 20 years studying how rattlesnakes and similar animals have adapted to the food and water stresses of the desert. DiNardo explained to me that rattlesnakes can get to a state of 20% water loss without showing signs of dehydration, a feat that would kill mammals such as you and me. He also said that it takes 16 weeks of not drinking water for the rattlesnake to get to a state of dehydration. That roughly four-month period lines up nicely with the time between the desert's winter-spring rains and the monsoon storms. Growing up, my teachers in school loved to point to the kangaroo rat, which will go its whole life without drinking water despite a diet of mostly dry seeds. They achieved this feat thanks to a variety of adaptations. They eat high-carbohydrate seeds from which they produce half a gram of water for each gram eaten. Hyper-efficient kidneys stop water loss by producing extremely concentrated urine. Their nasal passages save water by reabsorbing moisture from their own exhaled breath. Finally, the best adaptation of all, and one shared by countless species, they are nocturnal. Still, other animals, and some plants, decided that the best way to win was not to play at all. Take the gambles quail, for instance. 
which will not nest unless there has been sufficient rain that will guarantee insects and fruit to feed their young. But the best examples of this might be the spadefoot toad and the Gila monster. The latter will spend nine months of the year doing absolutely nothing, living off of the fat stored in its plump tail, and will only emerge for a few months in the late spring and early summer. The spadefoot toad takes it a step further, sitting dormant in a burrow for 10 to 11 months until it hears the vibration of rain or thunder, and then finds temporary rain pools in which to mate. Once it's done, it's back underground for another 10 to 11 months. If there isn't enough rain, they simply won't come out. Of all the species that not only cope, but manage to thrive in the desert, none have captured the popular imagination so much as the rattlesnake. That eerie rattling sound can send shivers up the spine of most, conjuring pictures of an aggressive snake just waiting to strike with its poisonous bite. It's an evocative image, but unfortunately not a very accurate one. Nor does it capture the vital role rattlesnakes play in both the Sonoran Desert and the state of Arizona as a whole. Because, spoiler alert, we have a lot of rattlesnakes. According to Donardo at ASU, between all the species and subspecies, Arizona has 19 different types of rattlesnakes. That's a diversity that's simply not found anywhere else. Just on South Mountain in the Phoenix area alone, there are six different types, he told me. One of the reasons for this overabundance of rattlesnakes is the fact that Arizona is so topographically and vegetatively diverse, and they are so ably adaptive. Or it's not so much that they have evolved to fill a certain niche, but more like a slew of niches, according to DiNardo. In fact, in terms of biomass, they are the dominant predator of the desert. That means if you were to add up all the rattlesnakes, coyotes, bobcats, mountain lions, and other predators out there, the total weight of rattlesnakes would outmeasure any single other predator. And in this role, they play an important part of maintaining a stable environment by keeping the number of small prey in check. They also have several advantages over larger mammal predators, one such being their greater tolerance for heat and lack of food and water. They also have a higher population density. Donardo said that during his research, it would not be unusual to find 200 rattlesnakes in an area that would only be 120th or even 150th the range of a mountain lion. And their chief characteristics, the eponymous rattle and venom, are evolutionary tools to give them an edge. Research suggests the rattle actually evolved from the trait that many modern-day snakes and some lizards still display. According to Donardo, several species, including king snakes and gopher snakes, will shake their tails during confrontations. The thought is that this behavior is a distraction, rustling leaves or small pebbles, to draw a predator's attention toward the lower end of the body, which in some species, especially lizards, can be detachable, instead of the more vital parts or the head. So the rattlesnake's rattle may just be an improvement on that behavior, Donardo said. It was once thought that rattlesnakes may have evolved alongside some of the plains-dwelling megafauna, the mammoths, mastodon, and massive bison we discussed earlier, so the rattle was simply a way for those large behemoths not to trample on the comparatively tiny snakes. But Donardo said that the latest research now indicates that rattlesnakes evolved in a tropical area, further south into what is currently Mexico, and never had contact with any such megafauna. And a rattlesnake's venom is just another adaptation to living in conditions where food may be scarce. The venom works in several different ways after entering the prey. It's an anticoagulant and can cause a crash in blood pressure. Also, it will start to break down the tissues, potentially helping in digestion. The venom is also coupled with an adaptation that Donardo called critical to the rattlesnake's survival. 
Like other species, it has the ability to swallow something bigger than itself. During his research, he once found a baby rattlesnake that had eaten a wild mouse, something that was more than 100% of the snake's body weight. As DiNardo put it, these adaptations are important because a rattlesnake doesn't want to miss the opportunity for a meal just because the prey might be too big. And venom, in the name of food, is also the characteristic of another of Arizona's more, let's say, notable denizens. The scorpion. Scorpions are perhaps one of nature's greatest successes. The general consensus is they emerged from the oceans more than 400 million years ago, possibly having evolved from a race of aquatic arthropods called Eurypterids. Though there is still considerable debate over the details, such as whether they originally developed on land, then moved into the sea, and whether they evolved from Eurypterids or are only related to them, either way, scorpions were the first terrestrial arthropods and the oldest arachnids in the fossil record, with examples of species being found in amber and marine deposits. They also have changed very little in body structure, aside from the necessary adaptations for living on land versus the sea. They've also adapted to a number of different environments, showing up nearly everywhere between deep, dark, secluded caves and on the slopes of the Alps. A 2018 paper lists 2,200 species of scorpions, which is rather small compared to the number of different spider and insect species, but they point out that there has been an increase in identified species over the past 40 years or so, mostly due to better research. The author projected that number might reach 5,000 or more in coming decades. As a case in point to all this, a few years ago I spoke with a scorpion expert who had discovered a new species in the Santa Rita Mountains in southern Arizona. When talking about what set this species apart, he explained that the majority of differences in scorpions are seen in minute differences in body structure and DNA evidence. But he also said that this new species had been isolated from other members of the same genus and developed those minute differences in a little more than 8 million years, when whole genres of species such as mastodons, mammoths, and the saber-toothed cats have all come and gone within only the last million years. But for the humble scorpion, their main adaptation, and the one you are most concerned about, is venom. First things first, all living species of scorpions are venomous. However, most present no danger to humans. The biological evidence so far suggests that a mutation in a single gene for a group of proteins called defensins, found in various animals and plants to fight bacteria, turned them from helpers to killers. One thought is that as scorpions moved onto land, the realities of gravity meant they had to shrink. Their only offensive weapon was their front pincers, which put them at a risk while grabbing onto prey. So venom was a natural way of neutralizing risk while hunting. This may be interesting, but what does this all have to do with Arizona, I hear you ask? Enter the Arizona Bark Scorpion, a Sonoran Desert resident and the only scorpion in the United States that is quote-unquote medically significant. Which is just a fancy way of saying it can send you to the hospital, or in the case of children and the elderly, result in death. Why select scorpion species, which feast on insects and arachnids, would have a venom that would work so well on mammals is still something of a mystery. There are only roughly 50 species, various sources give different numbers, of scorpions across the globe that are deadly to humans. They mostly belong to a certain family of scorpions called the Boothidae. However, the only ones that are large enough to actually feed on small vertebrates rely more on their strong pincers rather than venom to subdue prey, and none of those belong to the Boothidae family. 
So why the Arizona bark scorpion would be able to so painfully target a large mammal, like say a man going about his business in Chandler, is an ongoing area of study. But while the Sonoran Desert is a fascinating part of Arizona's makeup, it's important to note that it's not the whole state. Arizona can be broken up into three sections. The Basin and Range region, including the Sonoran and Mojave Deserts, which take up the bottom third of the state and sneak up its left side all the way to Nevada. This is also the area with those tilted mountain ranges we discussed last week. Then there are the Central Highlands, a transitional zone stretching in a northwest leaning line between the New Mexico border and nearly to US-93 west of Prescott. It's bounded by the Mogollon Rim to the north and characterized by tightly clustered mountain ranges with narrow, shallow basins. Well-known places such as Safford, Globe, Payson, Pine, Camp Verde, and Prescott are all located in this zone. And finally, we have the Colorado Plateau, which is a large expanse of horizontal geography and stacked plateaus that, as the name suggests, comes in from the northeast and covers the upper third of the state. As mentioned before, the edge of this plateau is the famed Mogollon Rim, which is a sharp escarpment that in places can drop some 2,000 feet. The Colorado Plateau can range from 4,000 to 9,000 feet in elevation, with climates also running the gamut from high desert to the alpine conditions to be found on the top of Mount Humphreys. This is where Flagstaff, the Grand Canyon, Four Corners, and yes, that corner in Winslow, Arizona, are located. And it's across the Central Highlands and the Colorado Plateau that you can find the largest continuous track of ponderosa pine trees in the world. Ponderosa pine is widely distributed across the western U.S., but in Arizona there is a belt of them stretching in a roughly southeast to northwest line from the New Mexico border up to the Grand Canyon. Popular in the day with lumberjacks, most of that stand is now divided among a variety of national forests. Fairly drought tolerant, this type of pine needs less nitrogen and phosphorus to grow needles, meaning it can thrive where other species can't. It can also manage to thrive in soils made from igneous, metamorphic, or sedimentary rock, and is typically found in warm, drier sites. Sound like any place you know? But even in the desert itself, rising far above the valley floor, there is still a surprising amount of biological diversity, because here, on top of those basin and range mountains, you'll find the surprisingly vivacious Sky Islands. The Sky Islands are a combination of 65 isolated mountain ranges across the Basin and Range region, covering 45,000 square miles in southeastern Arizona and northern Mexico. These ranges, which can rise above 9,000 feet, get their name because they are like tall islands that harbor oak, pine, and other coniferous trees, not to mention numerous animal species not found in the vast dry desert ocean at their base. The ranges of southern Arizona, so the Santa Catalinas, the Santa Ritas, the Babuquivaris, the Huachucas, the Chiricahuas, fall into this category. The Superstitions and Pinals are the northernmost ranges that fit this designation. The key to the different ecosystems found on top of these sky islands is the elevation. Studies have shown that for every 1,000 feet in elevation gained, the average annual temperature drops 4 degrees, while precipitation increases by about 4.5 inches. It's also the equivalent of driving 300 miles north. So, driving from the base to the top of Tucson's Mount Lemmon, for example, 
is biologically no different than driving 2,000 miles from northern Mexico to central Canada. These mountains also act as stepping stones of sorts, especially for the migration of bird species. In the far past, individual species also used them to expand to their current ranges. This creates an astounding level of diversity. For example, more than 2,100 species of plants are found on the U.S. side alone, with an additional 1,500 estimated to be in Mexico. The presence of oak woodland not found on the desert floor is one of the defining characteristics of a sky island. Nearly 500 species of birds, half of all the species in the U.S., have been reported in southeast Arizona. The Chiricahuas alone are estimated to contain a third of all North American species. As someone who has lived at the base of the Santa Ritas, I can personally attest to how people flock to these areas just to get a look at rare birds, such as the elegant trogon. Look it up, it's a real bird and has quite the distinctive plumage. There are 120 species of reptiles and amphibians inhabiting Sky Islands, or roughly 80% of Arizona species. There are more than 150,000 species of invertebrates, including evidence that this area may have a higher diversity of bee species than anywhere else on Earth. Once again, the Chiricahuas are a great example, having roughly 500 species of bees. Add to that 100 species of mammals, including some that are range-specific, such as the Mount Graham Red Squirrel. This is also the only place in the U.S. to have jaguars. Yes, you heard me right, jaguars. Though the international border and other factors have done much to cut down their numbers coming out of Mexico, they do occasionally still pop up. Between 2011 and 2015, a male jaguar named El Jefe as part of a Tucson area school contest, was spotted in the Santa Ritas. Aside from the biological numbers, sky islands also help make the Sonoran Desert what it is. During the summer months, moist air coming in from the Gulf of California sweeps through the area. When these moist masses encounter a sky island, the air rises, cools, and forms clouds. And it's these clouds that will release that moisture as summer monsoon storms. And just to tie things back around, in the misty past, during the interglacial periods we spoke about earlier, it was the sky islands that provided a buffer for plant species seeking either to escape the heat of a valley floor or find a suitably cooler habitat during the cycles of glaciation, warming, and drought. Whew, so that was a thumbnail sketch of the life and times of the Sonoran Desert and Greater Arizona. I hope you can appreciate now that, as aggressive as it looks, Nothing in the desert wants to kill you. They just happen to have a litany of tricks evolved over millions of years to live in an environment that oftentimes can be challenging. Rattlesnakes, scorpions, cactus, and even Gila monsters are just built to not only survive, but thrive in this place. But now it's time for them to take a backseat in our story. That's right, with the scene now set, the time has come to move from natural history to prehistory. Humans, who made a cameo appearance at the beginning of today's episode, are now taking center stage. So join me next time as we discuss the builders of the cliff dwellings, canals, and Arizona's great house. We'll walk through what we know, what we don't know, and what they contributed to the history of the place they had no idea would one day be called Arizona. Special thanks this week go out to Dr. Dale DiNardo from Arizona State University, 
And another shout out to the Arizona and Sonoran Desert Museum's fantastic natural history of the Sonoran Desert, which I leaned on heavily for today's episode. I would also like to give a special thank you to everyone who's reached out to me to say that you've been enjoying the podcast so far. I'm really glad I can provide something that is entertaining and informative and that you'll actually listen to. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to help me out, go to whatever platform you're listening to this on and leave the podcast a five-star review. It really does help other people find it. And once again, if you can't get enough of Arizona history, you can find me on social media, Facebook and Twitter, at AZHistoryPod. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.